morning. It is great to be with you. Uh, as we're thinking about inviting people to Alpha and getting outside of our comfort zones, potentially wanted to tell you a little story about a time when I was very much stretched outside my comfort zone. And what I've found is that very few things in my life have forced me to really wrestle with like my desire to feel competent and capable, like learning a new language. And uh, for about three years, my husband and I lived in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And while I did speak English there, and even though I'm from Louisiana, I promise I learned English, I, we also spoke a few other languages while we were there as well. We spoke French, and I got okay at French. Like, I studied it. I spent more time uh, working on it and actually speaking it with my colleagues. And then the other language that they spoke in the region where we lived uh, was Swahili. And I did not get very good at Swahili. I had, like, a couple, like, basic phrases and words, but I didn't study it. I didn't put that much time into it. One day, I was uh, driving to meet a pastor that I worked with, and I was trying to find my way to his house. And uh, I rolled in my window, and for some reason that day, I was like, I'm going to try Swahili. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try it. And I rolled in my window, and I called out to this guy who was walking on the street. I said, which means, where is the pastor's house? And he immediately came up to the car, and my husband Kyle was with me, and he was like, whoa, I didn't know you could do that. And I was like, yeah, I know, I've just been picking it up here and there. And all of a sudden, this guy comes up, and he just is like rapid fire, like just spitting out directions, I assume. And after about a minute, I think he could tell that like I just like was totally missing everything that he said. And so in English, he goes, English? He's like, just keep going. The pastor's house is on the left. So eventually I did make my way there and I was pretty proud that I tried. But I tell you what, learning a new language is so humbling. It is a process of constantly coming up against your limits and being willing to like look silly or make a mistake. And you just like cannot do it any other way. The only way to actually grow in your ability to learn a new language is to accept that you will have to deal with the discomfort of your inability over and over again. And in a lot of ways, that is what following Jesus is kind of like. It is about confronting your inability, your limitations, as you learn a new way to be in the world. It's about admitting where you come up short and you need something bigger than yourself to hold you, to heal you, to give you hope, and then to propel you back into the world to love and serve, which of course, again, will be the place where you come to the end of yourself and you must look to Jesus as the only one who is sufficient. So much of following Jesus, whether you're just starting out or you've been doing it for years, is about coming to the end of yourself and learning to say, but Jesus, you are able. And when we call Jesus able, we are invited to depend upon him. When we call Jesus able, we are invited to depend upon him. And that's the invitation we're going to be exploring today together. Last week, Petey kicked us off as we are walking through the second half of the book of Mark throughout our Lenten series together, spending time with that question that Jesus asks his disciples in Mark chapter 8. Who do you say that I am? 
And how they answer that question literally determines everything. It determines how they live in the world, how they view themselves, the decisions they're going to make. And what we're going to see again and again is that the disciples, like, they don't quite fully get it. They're not off all the time, but they are constantly bumping up against their limits and expectations. And of course, they have been walking with Jesus. They've been sharing the ins and outs of his mission, but they're not yet fully fluent in his ways. And today we'll see that's in part because they are learning still to depend upon him. So a little bit of background. Back in Mark chapter 6, Jesus has called his disciples, but he has also sent them out with authority to share in his ministry that he himself is doing, which is three things. It's preaching uh, the good news of the kingdom of God, it is healing people of diseases, and it is casting out demons. And so the disciples, they are sent out to go and do this themselves, and they do. And they're successful. They heal people. They cast out unclean spirits. And the power of Jesus is active in and through them to bring wholeness to people's lives. And then when we get to our passage today, which is in Mark chapter 9, three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, have been off kind of having some alone time with Jesus. And they're on their way back, and they're meeting now the rest of the disciples who have been out healing people and casting out demons. Except now the disciples have hit a limit. They have encountered a spirit that they cannot cast out, and it's causing a huge stir. So before we dive in, you may remember that a few weeks ago, I said that Mark loves to write stories like sandwiches, where there is a beginning of a story and an end of the story. And they're both like these pieces of bread that are like holding together this like middle filling of the sandwich. And in these story sandwiches, the outsides help us make sense of what's going on on the inside. And the inside helps us make sense of what's going on on the outside. And that is exactly what is going on in our passage today. So we're going to walk through each section of the story sandwich, uh, looking at each piece of it, because it really helps us see what Jesus is trying to get across to us about trusting him. So if you have a Bible available for you, maybe you have one on your phone or you have one of these journal Bibles that we gave out, if you like want to slip your hand up to get a journal Bible, we have a few more we can pass out to you. But we are going to be in Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 14. And we're just going to walk through the very first piece of bread in this story sandwich. So starting at verse 14 in chapter 9. And when they, which is Peter, James, John, and Jesus, came to the rest of the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And when he answered them, and then he answered them, O faithless generation, 
How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. So pause right there. So this is our first piece of bread and our story sandwich. And it's really focused on the disciples and their inability. They were not able, the Father says. And then Jesus diagnoses that the reason that they are not able, that they are not successful, is that they lack faith. Oh, faithless generation, he says. And that's directed towards his people, the disciples. It's this faithlessness that has held back the disciples from fully entering into the healing that Jesus might be able to do through them. So continuing on, we're going to get to the, the meat of the sandwich, picking up in verse 20. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, Immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can... All things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. So, this is the middle of our sandwich. It's this intense, emotional healing. You just feel that searching desperation of the Father. And what comes out here is that where the disciples we're not able. Jesus is able. And where the disciples were diagnosed as unfaithful and unbelieving, untrusting, we see a father struggling to believe, actively wrestling with it. And this father, he admits his limits. He knows that his belief is actually really frail. It's not perfect. And yet in the language of desperate prayer, have compassion, help, he says. He comes trusting Jesus as the only one who is sufficient. And Jesus heals the boy. And the healing is almost like a resurrection, a rebirth. That is how dramatic it is. And so then we get to the very end of our story sandwich, the last piece of bread, starting in verse 28. And when he, Jesus, had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And so here again, we circle back to the disciples' inability. Why couldn't we do it? And then Jesus says, you have to pray. Prayer is the key. Prayer is the posture that makes belief possible. 
So there's one more thing that I want to show you that is going on in this story sandwich, and it has to do with this Greek word that comes up again and again in this passage. It's this word pisteo, pisteo, and it's often translated in English like believe, uh, but a fuller definition of pisteo would be like to, to trust or to rely upon, to depend upon even. That's a much fuller meaning of the word pisteo than just believe. Like in English, I can uh, believe something like cognitively with my brain and still not actually trust it very much. Um, I can believe my sweet husband when he says that he loves me. Uh, I can believe that he really means it, but I can still choose to act like it's not true. Uh, Because if I act like it's true, then I'm willing to take action around that. I'm willing to take risks around that. I'm willing to put myself into situations where I might actually need his love to support me. So when I pisteo in something, I'm not just agreeing with a fact in my brain. I'm trusting it with my life. That is what is going on in Mark chapter 9, in that first piece of bread. In verse 19, when Jesus says, faithless generation, he's saying, ah, pistos, He's saying his disciples are not trusting him. They're relying on their own strength. And then in the middle, when the father cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. He's saying, I pisteo you, Jesus. I trust you. Help my apistia. Help my untrust. So if you take just a step back and you look at this whole sandwich together, the outer pieces that are about our inability, our struggle to believe, and a center that paints a picture of the transformation that happens for us when we move from unbelief to belief, from trusting in ourselves and our own strength to depending on the strength of Jesus, from trying all the words in our own strength to shift to the language of prayer, what we see is that just as much as this boy needs healing from the devastating and destructive effects of the spirit possession, we too, disciples of Jesus, need healing around our lack of trust in him. That is also a healing work that Jesus is wanting to do in our lives. So how how does that connect to us here How might that look, whether we've been walking with Jesus for years or we're still kind of checking him out? First, I think that part of what the story is showing us is that trust in anything apart from Jesus is toxic to our souls. Trust in anything other than Jesus is toxic to our souls. And I feel like that sounds really strong. It's almost like I'm saying it and I'm like, do I believe that? But I think it's true. And I think that that is the logic of what Mark is showing us here. You know, if I were to ask you the question, uh, what holds you back from uh, truly depending on Jesus? I think the answer is usually you're depending on something else. We all depend on something. We all trust in something. The question is not whether or not we trust, it's what do we trust in. 
And what we see here is that even for very seasoned disciples, that movement of being sent by Jesus into a world that is hurting, that needs him into places of pain, that provokes in us all kinds of temptations to trust in things that are not Jesus. It reveals that instead of Jesus, we trust in busyness. And therefore, we avoid the needs of our neighbors. Instead of Jesus, we trust in the distraction of our screens, and we avoid naming our true needs and feelings to God. Instead of Jesus, we trust our bank accounts, and we avoid costly generosity. Instead of Jesus, I care about what everybody thinks about me, and I avoid conflict. Instead of Jesus, we trust hustle, and we avoid desperation. My question is, how is that working for you? Because according to the logic of this story, lack of trust in Jesus renders us utterly incapacitated in God's healing work in the world, and it makes us very prone to the destruction of our own souls. Trust in anything other than Jesus is like being possessed by a force that makes you unable to hear God speak to you and unable to communicate his goodness in the world, and it throws you into destruction. Trusting in anything other than Jesus, it's not good for you. It hurts you. But that brings me to my next point, because if trusting in anything other than Jesus is toxic, then trust in Jesus gives life. Trusting Jesus gives us life. And the key word there, it's not trust. It's Jesus. Because if you were to walk away from this passage and think, I just like, I gotta like believe harder and believe better and believe more, I think you'd miss the point. See, the dad in this story, his, his belief, his trust, it's not all neat and tidy. It's messy. It's struggling. It's desperate. He needs help with it. But Jesus, the object of his trust, is strong. His trust may be weak, but the object of his trust is the strongest thing in the world. About 15 years ago, Tim Keller, the Presbyterian pastor from New York City, he did a talk at Google about, like with all these like Google staff in Silicon Valley, about why believing in God is a reasonable position to take in the 21st century. And he says this, he goes, you know, you don't have to be certain in order to give trust in God a chance. Your belief doesn't have to be rock solid and subtle in order for you to try trusting out something that actually is rock solid. And he says, imagine you're out hiking and you slip down the side of a mountain and you start to fall and you see a branch sticking out of the side of the cliff and the branch is strong enough to hold you. If you're like kind of like doubtfully analyzing the branch and going, "Mm, I don't know if I believe that branch is strong enough and you don't grab it, you're going to fall. Or if you look at the branch and you go, wow, I really believe that branch is strong enough to hold me, but you don't grab it, you're still going to fall. But if you reach out and grab the branch, even if you're still not totally sure about it, you're going to be safe. That is an act of trust where the strength of the object matters way more than the strength of your trust. Because even if you're not rock solid about that branch, it is rock solid for you. 
And this is what Keller says. Weak faith in a strong object is infinitely better than strong faith in a weak object. Because it's the object of your faith that saves you, not the strength of your own faith. It's what you trust that matters. It's not about how perfectly worked out your trust is. That is the best news of all from this story, that Jesus is strong even when our trust is weak. And he is worthy of our trust because he is able. He's able to bring life and healing where we long ago thought it wasn't possible anymore. And he's able to free us from all the other stuff that we depend on apart from him. He is able. And so, finally, Jesus is clear at the end that the way we grow in trusting him and this kind of trust is through prayer. Prayer is the posture of dependence. And we don't need to believe in order to pray, but we pray in order to believe. If you want to grow in trust, grow in belief, grow in dependence, prayer is going to be a part of it. And when I say prayer, I don't mean approaching God like a vending machine, like where belief is like the dollar bill that you put in. And if you believe hard enough, then like you'll get out like what you want from there. Like, oh, I want like uh, a new car and good grades and physical healing or whatever. That is not the kind of prayer that Jesus models throughout Mark. It's not a vending machine. Instead, it is communion. Prayer is where Jesus communes with his Father. It's where he remembers that he's the beloved Son. It's where he receives empowerment before really difficult ministry. And later in Mark, prayer is going to be the place where Jesus depends upon the goodness of his Father, even with the cross on the horizon, even with the most difficult, painful thing ever, prayer is where he will depend on the goodness of his Father. Prayer is where we, too, are empowered, as Petey said last week, for cross-shaped lives, which will require the greatest possible trust we could ever imagine. And friends, it is no coincidence that when I think about real-life examples of this kind of prayer, I think about our mission partners. Friends, if you want to learn how to pray, how to trust Jesus with this kind of joyful and even uncomfortable dependence, I would encourage you, get engaged with one of our mission partners that are laboring for the kingdom in Edina or Minneapolis or Latin America or Africa or the Middle East. And come alongside them not just to serve, but to learn from their witness toward us. I don't know how many of you have had a chance to grab a copy of our sermon series study guide that we have out right now. You can still pick up a copy or download a copy online. And this week features a reflection from one of our mission partners, Shadi Fatehi, who works with PARS Theological Center. It's an amazing organization that is working to equip pastors and Christian leaders and the church among Iranian people, both in Iran and in the diaspora. And y'all, the church is growing faster among this group of people than pretty much anywhere else in the world right now. But this growth has come with some serious persecution and opposition. And PARS actually shared with us a letter 
from a young man named Nasser, who is currently serving a 10-year prison sentence uh, right now because of his faith in Jesus. And he was writing a letter to his church, and he said this, Surely I could not walk on my own. The Lord carries me on his feet with the warmth of your love through the hardship of this dungeon. And then Shadi goes on to say, persecuted Christians like Nasser will often say that what has sustained their trust in God more than anything is prayer. Prayer is both a result of trust and a catalyzer of trust. In other words, we cannot trust enough if we do not pray enough. Now, I know that most of us will never experience the kind of situation that Nasser and other persecuted Christians face, but I do know that for a lot of us, life over the last year has made us a little bit more desperate. It has exposed the things that we trust apart from Jesus as we face situations bringing us to the end of ourselves, whether it's a pandemic or a job loss or at-home school or anxiety or loneliness or isolation. You fill in the blank. You know what it is for you. I know what it is for me. And while I could never guarantee that prayer is just going to be this like silver bullet that immediately solves that thing you're holding, Prayer will help you reach out your hand to grab hold of the one that is strong enough to get you to the other side, the one who is rock solid, the one who is actually reaching out his hand for you. And prayer will be the thing that helps you get to the other side because it will help you grab hold of the one who is helping you do that. And there's a little clue to this in Mark 9. Jesus casts out the demon and it says that they all thought he was dead. And then there's this beautiful sentence. Jesus took the boy by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. And it's this image of resurrection. Not only a foreshadowing of Jesus' resurrection, but friends, it's a foreshadowing of our resurrection too. That the one who we trust in Jesus is able to overcome at the end the thing that we ourselves, no person can ever overcome, even death itself. And so even though we live in the in-between and we face so many trials, none of these things will have the last word because our hope of resurrection is the ground of our trust in the one who is able. There's a story, another story of another resurrection in John, and Jesus says, whoever trusts in me, though he die, yet shall he live. This is the strong branch on the side of the cliff. Though our trust may be weak, the one we trust is strong. He is able to overcome the things we could never overcome, and therefore we are invited to depend upon him.